Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases, as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Will you start by sharing your first and last names? And- Hi, I'm Sarah Fisher, and I am an animal-centered education instructor. Wonderful. So I first heard you um, on Beyond the Operant, which is kind of a YouTube podcasty um, new thing with Andrew Hale, Kim Brophy, and Kathy Murphy. And I will link that for everybody in the show notes so they can check it out. But you spoke of this concept, free work, which really resonated with me. Can you explain what free work is? That's actually a really challenging question. In a really simplistic term, think of education being intertwined with or meeting enrichment. Mm. The longer version is um, sensory education supporting at least seven senses. So five senses are probably familiar to everyone, but there are two more that I think we need to consider when we're educating our amazing animal companions. And those two additional senses are proprioception, which is basically how you orientate yourself in space without needing to look down at each body part and vestibular balance and that's obviously part of the balance system and the concept of free work is really to help engage all those seven senses by giving the dog sensory experiences so they can use their noses their paws touch things with their muzzle their whiskers but looking at the balance of the animal both from a physical balance and also emotional balance and blending in different sensory items that we're shaping so they're of benefit to the animal because some people think dogs don't enjoy snuffle mats, but it's actually because they may be on the floor and it's not emotionally or physically comfortable for the dog to access those treats. So it's kind of 25 years of being led by the only canine experts that exist to create a familiar framework using these sensory items either as an enriching exploratory session on their own or as a way of shaping all further learning on this amazing foundation, which is just blows my mind every day. And so if we were looking at a free work session, because I've watched um, some videos that I found on YouTube and we will see an environment that has essentially been made into this kind of enrichment zone for dogs. And you might have, like you said, a snuffle mat and you might have one on the ground as well as one raised up because you're asking what's more comfortable to you, right? And you might have, um, I even saw one that had like a kiddie pool with balls in it. So it was kind of a ball pit with food and then, um, you know, different textures for the dogs to walk on. And you always have water available, which I do want to come back to because that's a big piece for you. And I think that's really, really interesting. And so you're kind of just putting the dog in this space that encourages dogness and then watching how does this dog express dogness? Yes. I like that. Okay. And go go for it. So for example, lovely sighthound called Pansy came to visit the farm, oh gosh, three years ago, two, two and a half years ago, three years ago. She had been in kennels all her life. She was an ex-racing greyhound. She came into a kennels here in England to be rehomed. But in kennels, 
pansy struggled, which is not uncommon, even with dogs that are raised in kennels. So her greeting behavior was really quite busy. She would jump up and down a lot. And just from experience, Sarah, that enthusiastic greeting behavior, the, oh, she loves people label, immediately sets off sort of little alarm bells saying, mm-hmm, potential body sensitivity, potential body pain that hasn't been addressed. So I already had that kind of piece of information formulating, and I really try to be objective, but we love to look for patterns. Mm, yes. So the, the great thing about free work is that we kind of, even if we have those thoughts, we actually get to just stand back and observe the dog as the dog gathering data from the environment we've invited the dog into. We have the opportunity to gather data from that dog. What was really evident is first, I had way too much stuff out. So over the last three years, I've really simplified those first few steps for both the people watching and also the dog. So we now have way less items and we add because it's better to add than having to take something out that's already spooked the dog. The reason that we, I knew that we, I had put too much stuff in is we were able to observe Pansy's movement as she stepped over some of the little low walkover sort of boards that were in the room and again now I don't start with those because so many dogs actually have got issues normally around the hind end we don't want to put them into a position where we're reinforcing an inefficient posture so Pansy was walking over them and you could see her kind of bunny hop and swing her left hind I think it was out to the side she was also uh, very flat through the back there wasn't this nice gentle curve from the top of the shoulders the withers through to the base of the tail And she um, preferred to go around the room in an anti-clockwise direction. So, of course, that could be learned and reinforced from being a racing greyhound because the track always runs to the left and the training tracks run to the left as well. But again, this is data gathering. You don't want to just go, oh, that's because of that. Because even if it is because of that, this is now an inefficient body movement pattern. What was absolutely fascinating about that piece of information is when Pansy was worried by something in the environment she would lunge and bark and sort of leap forward and her amazing caregiver was doing a great job of inviting her to turn away from whatever was upsetting her in the environment might have been a different shaped dog because lots of sight greyhounds haven't seen other shapes of dogs one of my donkeys upset her she hadn't seen donkeys before and horses as well But the important thing was that in turning Pansy away to the right, because it wasn't an easy movement pattern for her, far from lowering her arousal, it was actually increasing her arousal. And she couldn't take a treat afterwards if she was going to be rewarded for the amazing movement away. When we kind of reset everything for Pansy and switched the side that the handler was leading her from, We didn't need to do anything, Sarah. She was able just to stand relaxed, watch two pheasants fighting and then taking off in the field ahead of her. She was then just quietly invited to turn away and she literally floated around to the left and could take a treat straight away because her arousal and her body tension was lowered rather than being accidentally reinforced because her preferred or easy movement pattern had now been observed. From that as well, from that one session, she went back to kennels and she slept. I'd started to drip feed body contact in during that first session. She slept in the afternoon. The jumping up started to diminish because we were able to identify areas where she was really body sensitive. Second session, she was almost unrecognizable, Sarah. And the really amazing thing is that the shelter hadn't had time to do any work between those two visits. Because shelter life's crazy. Yeah. But her body remembered that we'd been able to set up more efficient movement patterns for her. And her whole nervous system had calmed and people recognized she was indeed body sensitive. So the guardians and the caregivers weren't reinforcing the behavior by ruffling her and overhandling her. So in the second session, her back, instead of being flat, was just just beautiful mobility through the back it was absolutely incredible to watch her she was much more fluid in her movement and we were able to shape the stations at a height that made it easy for her to stand in balance 
because she was crooked through the body. We'd also observed that in the first session. And from that as well, she was able to um, have x-rays. And indeed, she did have physical problems. She had arthritis in her neck and lumbar spine, if I remember. And she was also born with a crooked spine. And she was four years old. So we're not diagnosing, but we're starting to recognize patterns saying how do we need to support this animal based on what we're seeing rather than what we're believing? I think free work offers what I call the three R's, an amazing opportunity, uh, sorry, opportunity for a dog to reset, rebalance and release. But I think as well, a huge benefit is the guardian or the caregiver starts to recognize their habits that actually are driving some of the behaviors that they're then working to modify or change. So it's this amazing sort of reset from all levels and really meeting that animal where that animal is and being able to start considering details in that animal's life that might have been overlooked. I am really sensitive to this because I have chronic pain myself. And so when I look at dogs that I observe similar patterns to maybe what I will do, like without warning, they're a little bit more tense than normal, are they more reactive than normal for kind of seemingly no reason? I'm always looking at body posture. I think that's really important. And what was really fascinating to me was basically going, okay, she wants to turn one direction and you are always handling her from the other direction, asking her to turn the other direction. And it is remarkable how a small change, like in, in how you ask them to move their body affects behavior and it affects me. If I practice good posture, do my yoga, do my exercise, I'm way more mentally stable and less likely to completely scream at somebody when I'm driving my car. So, (laughs) so I think that makes total sense. And I, I work a lot with border collies. Oh, okay. Border collies are circly, a circly beast. They, they, they want to circle stock and they, all of them have a preferred direction that they yeah. need to go. And straight line is typically not the direction that they want to go. And so I think it's really fascinating bringing up um, to the, the racing greyhound, the X racing greyhound and the circle pattern that's been ingrained and just just making these small observations and therefore just tweaking things and then kind of continuing to observe. So you said that, yeah, I have to interrupt you because I'm so excited to talk to you, but you just said something so important about straight lines. If you watch animals exploring an environment, they don't walk in straight lines. Oh, never. meander they do this beautiful shallow serpentine if they need to quickly get from a to b for safety to get to territory where they may be able to forage for food they trot and that is more inclined to be in that straight line because it's more efficient so why are we teaching young growing puppies adolescent dogs whose balance is already all over the place physically cognitively and emotionally but particularly physically through adolescence because they get very uh, croup high very long in the back leg around five six months why are we teaching them to walk at our pace by our side in a straight line (laughs) but then twisting through the body to look up at us because that's the position that has been encouraged for I don't know years hundred years at least. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, are in, we are teaching and reinforcing crookedness when actually what a dog will benefit from most is good balance and good proprioception. So again, we can teach all that in free work, Sarah, where I'm really helping the guardians change their habits or the caregiver by looking ahead and just feeling that incredible connection with a dog of any age by their side without a lead, without anything. So again, it's coming back to that behavior of the human that's driving some of the behaviors in the dogs that are linked to poor balance, arousal, frustration, anxiety, and confusion. Because when we're teaching our amazing companions to look up at us and throw all their weight through their left shoulder, shorten that right hind, twist through really important junction in the middle of the back, T13L1, 
and look up at us, our shoulders and our hips and our eyes actually are, tele are cueing them from a visual perspective to actually go in the opposite direction. But somehow they learn to ignore their amazing observational skills because of their reinforcement history. Yeah. So again, if you can just soften and straighten, the dog can go, right, we're, mo we're mirroring, we're, we're moving in balance, we're looking ahead. And how does that then follow through to other aspects of that dog's life? Well, if your dog is going, oh my gosh, there's a dog I really need to go and see, or oh my gosh, there's a dog that's really bothering me. If we have already built this incredible connection of awareness and mirroring each other rather than confusing each other, if you just float your body and turn, the dog is more likely just to soften and turn with you. Mm -hmm. We don't need to distract them. We don't need to take them more out of balance to move them away from something that's already causing some upset in that balance system, emotional, physical. So again, it's these tiny details to me that are hugely important. So I love that you mentioned walking in straight lines. It's not a normal it's not. movement pattern. Yeah. And we, I, we talk a lot of this podcast about kind of what's, what we should be doing with puppies, what's safe to be doing with puppies. And I'm a huge advocate for no leash walking. I'm really big into free. I'm big into free movement for all dogs. I'm pretty much right. anti-walking the dog around on sidewalks in your neighborhood. And so for me, I let puppies free exercise kind of as much as they want to. And I don't right. like kind of marching them around on on a short leash, you know, in a straight line, inevitably. And always, yeah. No, I was telling people to, if the dog is on a leash and you be probably because you're dealing with something, you're dealing with some kind of trigger, um, to follow their feet and kind of pay attention to the direction they'd like to go. Right. If they would like to go away from the trigger, if they're moving their feet away from the trigger, go with them that way. And it totally winds up being an S curve. It totally winds up being, and now I'm a little bit more comfortable and I'd like to shift towards the thing, um, and away. So I think that was, that's a really important thing to talk about. You mentioned that this was developed over 25 years. So this yeah. is like your, your long process of observing and changing, and I'm sure it's still growing and still changing every time you work with a dog, but let's go back to kind of the beginning. Where do you, do you feel like you saw kind of a hole in the industry or a hole in like the way that we were approaching dogs that led you here? Or was it more kind of just your, your instinct was to more listen to them than, than guide them? Oh, hands up. I can say my um, best tutors, only tutors probably with, you know, obviously amazing connections that we make through life with like-minded people like yourself, but my, my greatest tutors are the dogs themselves. And it's not that I saw a gap at all. I think it's been an evolution. And part of me can't believe it took me so long to piece it all together. But going right back, I had a horse that fell as a two-year-old when he was on livery with somebody, just an accident in the field. And he was a really big, fast-growing horse. And I didn't know whether we were going to be able to give him good quality of life. He had rotated his pelvis and was two inches higher on his right side of his pelvis and, and that was permanent damage. I then read about the work of Linda Tellington Jones and T-Touch. My original background was having had animals all my life, written since I was four years old, but had trained in human massage with anatomy and physiology and light massage. And then also working, doing a course with an amazing Chinese doctor who really focused on the health of the human spine. He worked with people but he knew I was connected with animals. <clears throat> so we were doing a lot of exchange of really exciting information during the, the course. It was just, a, you know, a, a private course. It wasn't to become qualified in anything. So then I read the book about Tellington Touch and I thought, you know, this makes sense about being able to teach awareness through movement. It, ma it made sense to everything I knew about gentle working with the human body and the influence of emotions on physical well-being and how the body remembers the, the body remembers stuff and I had such a powerful reminder of that when I was learning my massage before I came across T-Touch with someone who had been in a really horrific situation where basically she had no control over what happened to her and and working with this person there was a moment where her body kind of relaxed so much 
it brought back the memory of feeling that she had no control and no choice. And it really horrified her because she thought she had processed the really frightening experience that had happened to her 10 years before. And I remember that as a real light bulb moment of how much our body remembers stuff. It stores this information. And that made, so, so all of that was sort of in my mind with this horse and then learning about T-Touch. So the body work was amazing for him. And also the gentle movement exercises were amazing. And he ended up being put down at 28 because the arthritis around that lumbar spine, probably linked to the accident, was just changing too much the way his, the, the awareness of his hind legs. And for me, I would obviously rather put him down when he was well than have a catastrophic accident in the field late one night and us not finding him till the morning. And, and, I, and I really, he had a really, I believe, an enriched life with us. So that was my sort of learning more about the therapeutic modalities that were available for caregivers with their own animals. And that very quickly transferred to me then studying T-Touch for dogs. And then and that in America, we didn't have the courses here in the UK at the time because it had been so beneficial for my horse and our relationship together because I was able to connect with him doing really lovely low impact stuff that was you know, mutually beneficial because I really enjoyed those quiet connections with him as well. So when I, once I was qualified with horses and dogs as a T-Touch practitioner, I was very lucky to be invited to share some of the techniques for de-stressing animals with Battersea. And Battersea is one of the UK's oldest animal welfare centres. And my relationship with Battersea started probably at 24, 25 years ago. What was fascinating was really stressed dogs didn't like being touched. And we had a dog <laughs> on a work. Yeah, so it's like, oh, we frame, we think. So a lot of the stuff was done kind of with the dog being free in the old site. They've done an amazing rebuild since then. But we had a dog on a workshop and the workshop was for other people from other animal welfare centres. And this dog came in as the last dog on a two day workshop that I was teaching. And he came in for me to kind of assess. And I'd started to piece together a lot of information about the link between posture and behaviour. And that was something Linda had identified in the 1970s. But I'd started to see even more detail with muscle patterns and movement patterns and head carriage and position of the tail and the ears. So it was able to kind of start being able to suggest the more likely behavioral responses of an animal based on what was happening in this animal's body. So that's what this workshop was about, is, is sharing these things that I'd started to these patterns that I'd started to recognize month old brindle bull breed blend came in he was you know highly aroused he was pulling into his collar his eyes were bulging the membranes were red so I look at skin color I look at coat patterns I look at posture and obviously you know subtle nervous system responses as well as the more overt more obvious behaviors and I asked his caregiver if he felt that the dog would be comfortable having a harness put on because it would be nice to get the pressure off the neck so it was creating you know, more tension and, and more arousal for the dog and the caregiver said yes and he didn't think that would be a problem and he went to put the harness on the dog and the dog completely freaked out it was really upsetting for the dog and I had the dog's lead at that point and the caregiver had to step away did all the right things like softened sort of looked away lowered his chin and this dog was just staring at him and it was a really upsetting situation where this was 20 plus years ago. I realized we'd gone too far too quickly. We hadn't really taken enough information from the dog. The caregiver was really upset because he felt he'd, lock, he'd let the dog down. He had the start of a relationship with him because the dog had been there, I think, maybe a week. He, he wasn't ready for rehoming. He was still being um, assessed from a behavior point of view. And the teams were like, you know, adolescent, big, brindle, bull breed. And we're was just starting to see lots of bull breeds and kennels. You know, really the future for a dog that is unable to cope in kennels is looking quite bleak. And I said, no, that, that's fine. But, you know, we're here tomorrow and I'd, I feel really bad that we finished with this dog 
in such a state of distress. I'd like to give him the opportunity to find some peace tomorrow. So that was agreed that we, we were able to invite him back in and hopefully reset everything and reframe the experience for him. And I knew from my human background, the value of different textures on the sole of a human's foot to start giving the brain and body different information and to be able to create new patterns really quite quickly. So I said, look, okay, what what we'll do tomorrow is we want to rob any different texture that's safe for a dog to walk on from the kennels, from your cars. So let's set a different environment for him. We won't bring him into the training barn. We'll be outside. We need to kind of completely reset everything for him because we don't want to trigger. The nervous system can learn in one experience there, as I'm sure you know. So we'd already banked that information for him. So we needed to completely change everything. So the caregiver the next day was there and I said, you know, would you like to try and reconnect with him? If we have him on two long leads, we can support each other. We can give him some balance. We can give him as much space as possible. And my idea, I don't know if it's going to work, is to introduce different textures underfoot so that we can influence the sensory system. We can give him something else to think about. We can start shaping his posture because he was so high headed and his tail was rigid and his ears were rigid. And we had just added in a whole heap more tension for him. And the caregiver said he'd like to do that. So we had the dog between us and we had stripped everything we could from the kennels, different blankets. I had rubber mats from people's footwells from their cars. I had feed sacks. We had pallets that we'd covered with blankets so we could create a walk up and over so I could just help him start to sort of move through the wither and raise his back instead of being in the posture that activates the sympathetic nervous system the part of the nervous system that's linked to fight flight freeze faint and and fool around and we just started walking that's all we did I said we're just going to move we're going to let him find his way we're going to support him And as he started to touch the different textures with his paw and we came up over the pallet and he lowered his head because that's just biomechanics to do with movement up and onto a ray surface. He almost did a double take, Sarah, and looked at his caregiver, wagged his tail like a moment of recognition. And in that moment, I realized yesterday he was so stressed, he hadn't even recognized the familiar And that was the person who had started to build a relationship with him. It was a really deeply moving experience for everyone who was watching. We were then able to touch this dog. And he had a really beautiful time with us, I think, because the change was just extraordinary. And I was back teaching for Battersea I think two two or three months later. And I said to the head of the behavior team, you know, dare I ask what happened to this amazing dog? And she said, oh, look down there. And there under the railway arches was this amazing dog sitting with the caregiver. And the caregiver had his arm casually over the dog and he was doing T-touch body work on the dog's chest. And they were watching dogs coming down from the kennels to paddocks and the dogs who'd already been in the paddocks coming back to kennels. And then I was teaching another workshop for, I think it was veterinary teams and volunteers and I think for the cattery, I think I can't remember, to be honest. And I said, oh, I've had this amazing experience here. And anybody know what's happened? Is there an update? And one of the participants said, yes, my parents have adopted him. He lives on a farm out in the country. And then I saw her again at an event about 14 years later. And she went, I know what you're going to ask. He's still going. (laughs) Amazing, yeah. So that was a huge moment for me. The power of being able to educate the nervous system as a whole to let the dog find his own way of finding things where things can touch him that are safe because he's in control of it. I'm not explaining that very well, rather than us being the deliverer of body contact. So that was a huge part of what ACE free work became. And then from, from there, that sort of recognizing these amazing, amazing companions, just how much they tolerate what we do with them oh rather than actually actively enjoying it. 
And I started to see again, like patterns that even in a familiar situation, no, sorry, even with a familiar person in a situation that might be less familiar to that dog, dogs were sensitive to body contact from their known person from T13 L1 back. Yeah. And that's to do with the sympathetic nervous system again. So I started to be invited to share more and more of these patterns that I was seeing and therefore share the stage in conferences with some, you know, um, amazing people, some of whom are still friends today. So it's been this beautiful sort of evolution of watching and learning and saying, I'm really sorry, I got that wrong and making it up to the dog in a second session or taking that learning with me to support the next dog who has a similar pattern. And there was a dog at another shelter close to me that I was asked to go and see again over 20 years ago who'd bitten three times and I look back and I think now gosh you know we 20 years ago we were in a in a at a time in some areas here certainly in the UK where it didn't matter when a dog bit a dog bit or a dog didn't bite right and how much detail was missing in between the some do some don't it's like well all might and we've got to look at why and I remember being at the shelf saying well you know when do these bites happen and and the caregivers being like almost surprised that this information was important and they remembered it was when he was picked up to be put in the car picked up to be put on the vet's table and when he was being groomed and all body all body handling type of but that little label dominance came in because he it was when somebody was doing something to him that he didn't like so I was like hang on a minute let's reframe this let's look at him move look at his posture let's look at what we're seeing he's overweight and his gait is off and the team said yes he his his gait is off because he's overweight and I said well let's reframe that do you think he's overweight because his gait is off rather than it yeah. being pain cr- yeah. causes people, animals to hold on to weight, Absolutely. pain changes movement patterns. And I we started to look in more detail at him, giving him sort of opportunities to sniff. And I said, look, my God, goodness, can you see there was a line of hair, handy fake dog here, that was going up in a looked like a wheat of corn uh, sort of a you know ear of corn like wheat with sort of a, a swirl where the hair was sticking up towards the dog's pelvis rather than lying smoothly yeah. down that thigh and I said there's been something happened to this leg look at the change there's a line of hair so they rushed him back to the vet and the vet was amazing took an x-ray and sure enough at some point this dog had broken his leg a metal plate had been inserted to hold the leg together the femur together he'd been found as a stray so we had no history on this dog but the pins in that plate were starting to move and were starting to ah. make their way out through the skin so well, how do you pick a dog up you scoop up that back leg so that accounted for two of the bites and when the amazing caregiving team really went back through what they had actually seen during grooming rather than what they believed had happened. He was being brushed on that right leg. So he was immediately obviously given pain relief and fundraising drive for hydrotherapy. And again, you know, 22 plus years ago, that that was actually pretty advanced for some of the small animal welfare organizations here. We didn't have the funding. People didn't have the knowledge that they have now. So I was really lucky as well and will always acknowledge my uh, uh, you know passion for looking at coat patterns in all animals because of this incredible dog his coat had changed where there was scar tissue but what I started to see Sarah was we could see more of the balance by looking at the lie of the coat that the coat actually would change direction where there was underlying tissue tension or tissue damage but also it would change direction where there were compensation patterns due to reduced mobility elsewhere but also due to skeletal change. So it's also become a huge part of ACE to observe not just movement, but the detail of the coat too. So all of this was all coming together. And then I was lucky enough to be able to purchase land and a lovely old farm 
and be able to host courses on my own property so we could actually set up a scent barn the dogs that were a bit worried when they came we could just let them chill out in the donkey barn and we would put Nina Otterson the wooden toys then Mm. in there or have them in the indoor workroom as well and the changes when dogs were given the opportunity to use their nose and just settle and move were huge and then I was also very lucky to foster dogs and Battersea still teach for them today I've had you know close to quarter of a century with that amazing organization and the Battersea dogs I think really are responsible for ACE as it is today and my darling cookie dough came down to me when she was five months old. She was so aroused by absolutely everything. She would just grab and jump and hang on my neck. She was about this big, but the momentum of rushing towards me would sort of carry her up into the air. But she was so super smart at processing everything. It was like the volume on her nervous system was dialed up sort of really loud touch was overwhelming sound movement so I started to teach her things that she could do on her own such as the ball pits cookie dough that started the ball pit for many dogs because it gave her control over noise and movement and different tactile input that wasn't coming from my hands but I realized really quickly with cookie dough that I'd actually fallen into a really big trap really quickly which was doing rather than being with her that I had kind of redirected that arousal and sensitivity and fast processing rather than helping to quieten her whole nervous system that's actually sorry that's no carry on my entire (laughs) I work primarily with behavior concerns in sport dogs so the um what you're describing the channeling of this kind of excess nervous energy is kind of what we we as the sport community do very well. And we breed and buy dogs that are also kind of wired a little bit too tight. And then we kind of, I, people don't like that I do this, but I use the word exploit. We exploit kind of who they are for our own needs. And so then when they show up to me with behavior issues, it's always the first thing we have to do is find a way for this dog to achieve some kind of autonomy and relaxation rather than constantly, you know, I'll say, I want you to take your dog into the field or the woods or whatever. And I want you to just go on a walk. And if the dog is literally bouncing in front of you, barking, unable to disengage and go be a dog in the woods, we have to start there. And the, when you were talking about the bully dog and you were, you had you provided this kind of multi-textured and height kind of situation for the dog to move through. That just reminds me of the first time I have these dogs actually be let off leash in a natural area. And they are right. And they're able to, you know, I want them to jump over logs and snuffle through bushes and run through the Creek and, and do all of those things. And it's remarkable how few dogs in America anyway, actually have that opportunity ever. And the changes that we see in them when they're kind of given that opportunity is it's remarkable. You see their entire body relax. You yeah. see their eyes finally go normal. <laughs> right? yeah. Their eyes finally don't look like their brain is on fire. And um, so you had kind of fallen, fallen prey to that, that yeah, it's, it's so easy to do because they're so reinforcing to train, right? They're so fun and responsive. And it's, but it was also more comfortable. She, you know, she'd be hanging off my neck. Yes, her, yeah. Her teeth. Or I was her fifth foster home at 20 weeks. Yeah. And she she was so super smart that <clears throat> I'll never forget the the that first week where I realized I I, you know, I concede I'm never going to be as smart or as observant or as sharp as this amazing little dog. And I I she was just jumping and jumping and grabbing and hanging and hanging on my neck kind of I'm sort of like detach her and I thought I know I, I'll I'll make this a nice fun learning experience for you and I put some colored sticky tape next to my chair about you know a foot away from my chair and she had lots of toys and shoes all on the other side of that sticky tape and did this nice sort of oh yes reinforcement you stay on that side of the tape took her probably 30 seconds Sarah to realize there was something with this tape she came up to the tape she put one paw over the tape and looked up at me and I was like oh no 
And she put it back. So, oh, well done. Yes, Mark, reward. Went and got her treat, came back, put her paw over the tape again, put it back. Yes, okay. Okay, I'm. she's going to chain this now, okay? I'm, I'm already in trouble. This dog's way smarter than me. Went and got her reward. Ran back to the tape, picked it up, peeled it off the floor and ran and sat next to my chair. I was like, I've got Einstein with teeth. What am I going to do? So that was part of that keeping her active because her brain needed a lot to do. True. But her brain also needed to be able to relax and slow down and all of those things. So she had a climbing frame made for her, for her vestibular system, because adolescent dogs have a drive and a need to climb, as I'm sure you know. And again, that falls into the unfortunate myth that adolescent dogs want to take over because they're now climbing on furniture. Uh, No, every cell in their body from around four to five months old is saying climb, climb, climb to strengthen the vestibular system. A strong vestibular system helps you to feel safe in the world. If you've ever felt from a neck discomfort or an ear infection dizzy, and that's a vestibular issue, you don't feel safe. You don't feel safe to be around people because they might knock into you. You might fall over. You certainly can't drive. So you start to lose control over your environment because it becomes so limiting. So adolescent dogs have a drive, a need to climb, which is why they'll start going up your shelving or along the back of your sofa or up onto the table. So we created lots of things for her where she could be active but without being overstimulated by my input as I realized oh my gosh hang on I'm starting to do too much I still did too much it still took more months to go I really am doing too much (laughs) so she was part of that hey we need height we need more variety we need more engagement more control for the dog to have more control over noise and movement so more and more things were coming together in terms of the ball pit. I ended up teaching her to play skittle. So she had complete control over, you know, interaction and triggering noise through action, as well as just sort of passive exploration as well. She was just oh, an amazing and amazing and amazing tutor for me. And I remember looking at her about four years ago thinking, oh, I wish I knew. I wish I had you now with the additional knowledge that you gave me and the additional awareness you helped me to gain for the benefit of other dogs and other foster dogs and other dogs in the shelter. And I got a phone call from a mutual friend who'd seen Cookie Doe's intake video at Battersea when she was, I don't know, probably 12 weeks old, Sarah. And she was just so aroused, so distressed by everything. And she also knew Cookie Doe as an adult dog. And she said, I've been contacted by a behaviorist who's got a client who sounds like Cookie Doe and the future's not looking good. The dog's five months old. And I've said before a decision is made, please talk to Sarah. And along came Henry. I said, I'd take him for two weeks. I knew how exhausting it can be to have dogs that find the whole world utterly overwhelming but are also super fast at picking everything up and how easy it is to get frustrated or confused or to overwhelm or to make an error that then actually does have quite a serious impact in terms of reinforcing you know quite heavy um, hard um, mouthing jumping up, arousal, frustration, lead grabbing, all, all of those things. So I took Henry for, for two weeks and he and he was like cookie dough, but he wasn't quite as fast at processing everything. So <laughs> he had a little bit of a break there. And he was the dog that brought everything together, Sarah, absolutely everything. He couldn't be touched. He had digestive disturbance. Mm. He lead grabbed and shook the lead he grabbed me I had to wear bite sleeves he was just so aroused and distressed and his darling guardians were just exhausted and depressed and oh just beside themselves they were so sweet so lovely and we had obviously you know amazing 
time with Henry and I was able to give them a lot more tools. And then Henry came, went back while I was away and then he came back again and he ended up staying permanently with me and Cookie Dough. And he really is the dog. I think Cookie Dough and Henry are the co-founders of Ace. I can't say yeah. I'm yeah. founder of Ace. It, it's these these two amazing, amazing tutors that were the co-founders. So yeah, Henry kind of brought everything together. In the meantime, obviously, I developed even more skills. And I kind of everything I see that's going to be beneficial, we kind of normally end up modifying it. But I hope I always credit where the inspirations come from. So I use Chirag Patel's The Bucket Game, but I use it for slow movement, for really gentle flexions left and right. Uh-huh. To help that dog reset, move his eyes, but also for observations. So I've had several dogs actually in rescue, so that's where my passion really lies, who might be able, when we teach the bucket game, start tracing the bucket when it goes to one side, but when it crosses to the other side, they actually can't flex at all. They have to throw their whole body. So again, we start to be able to observe more. And really the premise of Ace is watch more, do less. Really so that's the history of Ace. I love it. It's it's very, it's fascinating. And it's really, I'm always interested in talking to people who take kind of a wellness first approach, who kind of want to know what's really going on with, with this dog kind of in his body, in his mind, rather than, you know, dive in and fix it approach. I, you know, certainly am really well-versed in actual dog training. I do a lot of actual dog training and then, (laughs) um, but I recognize that the dog training that I do is limited. If there's a, what I call a, a welfare deficit, right? So if the dog's, um, actually just not okay in his own body for some reason. So what type of, you said you work a lot with rescue dogs who can come with, you know, a variety of issues, what what type of behavior problems like labels that we can give that people face on a regular basis do you feel i think i don't think anything wouldn't benefit from this kind of work but what kind of problems are you seeing have kind of huge benefits from free work that maybe we as an industry need to look a little bit deeper at this because i know we work you know a ton with things we label reactivity yeah right and then more and more things that we label kind of separation related issues, separation yeah. anxiety, separation distress. So like what, what are these behavior problems that you're seeing benefit from this work? I, th- I think you've mentioned them actually, anxiety in general mm-hmm. and what we might call reactivity. I think it's, and a whole heap of things in between, but I, I think we have to say, are these behaviors on the increase Or are they the behaviors that have the biggest impact on that dog-human relationship and the ability for that human-dog relationship to have an expanded world or a world that's shrinking because the dog can't be left, the dog can't go into novel situations, the dog can't go into social situations. So again, that kind of, I keep a question mark on everything if I can. The reality is, as you say, though, is that free work seems to support dogs with all manner of behavioral struggles and behavioral responses. So things like car travel, and that is linked to the vestibular system and anxiety and noise sensitivity. Reactivity in every single one of my cases, including students, I do more teaching at the moment than one to one. They're playing catch up, obviously, from not being able to have visitors to the farm for last year and a half, really. The biggest thing, uh, every single dog whose guardian wants support for what they would describe as reactive behaviours has got underlying undiagnosed pain. Either normally the most common ones here are the hips or the knees, Mm -hmm. sometimes issues with the lumbar spine, sometimes soft tissue, but nearly always undiagnosed hip dysplasia or luxating patella, sometimes elbow dysplasia. So that's another we're not diagnosing, but we are able to slow movement down because lots of dogs that are busy have got pain. So I always say, are we looking at a busy brain or body pain or both? Mm -hmm. And I've had the great joy of connecting with an amazing 
group near me, it's, it's my local dog unit with the police and oh, they're, they're incredible. They use clicker training and they've, I've had an amazing time teaching online for them and then going and teaching practical, looking at how these amazing working dogs are moving efficiently and what habits are being reinforced that are actually going to potentially shorten the working life of that dog and increase uh, risk of injury. And they're able to start recognizing really early on that the dogs that have high drive are really keen, actually have a lot of body tension Mm. and they're able to start now considering how they can slow that movement down. These dogs are being assessed by veterinary physio on a regular basis so that they don't just take high drive dogs and think the constant spinning one way or the constant vocalization or the constant jumping up it is linked to keenness. They're actually recognizing that there could be underlying things. Yeah that are common in working dogs and also for other aspects of working life. You know, some of these dogs may be coming from uh, rescue and being assessed for detection dogs and things like that. So again, it, you know, all dogs benefit from fee work because we're able to help caregivers really quickly start to identify patterns and rethink things. And it's just been an absolute joy working with such a variety of dogs through free work. So yes, from from private clients and and, uh, students that are bringing dogs on the in-person events, anxiety, big and reactivity for want of a better word. So yeah. let's just call them all sensitive. They're sensitive to. Right. I say, I say they have big feelings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sarah, that's, that's so fascinating. And I, all of that is so interesting. And I love that you're really I working with such a huge spectrum because a canine a police canine unit is a world different from yeah. you know your little small dog that wants to climb you and bite your neck. I mean there and yet there are these common threads. Yeah. Right. And these things that kind of bring them together that um give you this huge lens and just you know that many more teachers, right? Yeah. Definitely. So, so you mentioned, um, I know you teach online courses. So talk a little bit about where people can find you. I think people are going to be intrigued. They're going to want to know more. So where should they go? Thank you. Uh, www.tillyfarm.org.uk. Tilly is T-I-L-L-E-Y, tillyfarm.org.uk. And a list of our course dates are there. And you can email and we can um, send you more information. But also we have a really lovely Facebook group called Ace Connections. It's a really kind, supportive group, uh, huge experience in all manner of areas with the members. And everyone is there to support each other and help make the world a better place for these amazing dogs that grace our lives. So join us there as well. People upload videos. They ask for input. They ask for support. They ask questions about you know, anything to do with their dog's well-being and it's really lovely to be able to sort of bring this incredible community together and anybody can join that yep anybody can join Wonderful. that so definitely i think you're going to get an influx <laughs> including myself if i'm not in there really? yet. yeah so if you're not there I, already I yeah. in there see some of these dogs working so oh so just quickly as well we yes. were talking about puppies that when my foster puppies Uh, were exposed to this kind of early days of free work. What we recognised, Sarah, because some of the litters would be, I I wouldn't have the whole litter, one particular litter. uh, There was a litter of eight and and one of the puppies clearly had a problem with his neck. So I had him and a sibling when they were ready to leave their mum. So they were exposed to the early days of free work. And when we went back for the microchips and the Um, vaccinations to the shelter the puppies that had been on foster with me had more bone more muscle Mm. they were taller they were calmer we hadn't practiced sitting on a vet's table for microchips but all the novelty that they'd been exposed to in a familiar framework at the farm had prepared their nervous system 
for novelty. And they just sat on the vet's table being handled by unfamiliar people, had their microchips, their jabs, didn't make a single peep, didn't get tense, didn't need to decompress afterwards. And the they were so much bigger than their six siblings who were in an amazing animal welfare organization but hadn't been exposed to, like I say, what was the early days of free work. So again, letting those puppies move, as you were saying, is so important, that free movement. But thinking of safe ways that we can give their nervous systems new experiences through this extraordinary sensory education, life-changing. You're setting these puppies up in such a safe way from, you know, as early as possible. Absolutely. And I think that's an area that needs is being explored more and should be explored more and more. And um, one of the things that we talk about here a lot is not being afraid to let puppies kind of self self self-move and self-exercise as long as it's self-guided. And I, you're, you're completely right. We definitely observe um, my puppy, she's nine months old and she was raised like this. So she's going to the woods every day and running with my dogs and and doing all of these things. And um, she has such a fit, beautiful body with nice balanced posture and she just looks fantastic and people are always kind of commenting on it and (laughs) certainly I think she's got some good genes but she also is just allowed to do stuff into her body and it's I think it's it's just so beneficial I I can't I can't agree with you more than on that front what one last thing um that is important for puppies while we're on puppies well actually important for all dogs is please, please, please cover slippery floors. Because I think that is one of the biggest struggles for the modern dog is being raised on tiles or lovely shiny floors or laminate floors. And that creates body tension from a really early age. That body tension creates emotional tension. The stride shortens. You're creating patterns associated with the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight, flight, freeze, faint where the dog will just lie down not actually lose consciousness and and fool around and I think that's one simple thing that everybody can do is to adapt that environment if they do have a puppy in a home where the floors are, you know don't have carpets or non-slip rugs yeah and, and adults too I mean when they yeah, scramble, when they scramble on the floor yeah they get themselves into kind of an uproar in their mind <laughs> and if you can imagine it I mean when you're walking on ice yes or not, walk down, not. right if you're trying to walk on ice to get to your car or whatever it's it creates so much body tension to just try to walk from a to b that it makes sense and then we we do we put them on slick floors all the time I mean that's yeah because that's kind of our life um when, when your stride shortens your heart rate increases your respiration rate becomes more shallow. There are physiological responses happening internally as a response to the movement of that dog that's shaped by that external environment. And that's another thing that we don't always consider is what might be happening internally with very specific body shapes that we might be encouraging by mistake. Again, that looking up at us, And I think, too, are we actually teaching a dog to walk in balance and move through the body effectively when the dog's got his head up? Because actually what we've probably done is just shorten the stride. And that's not the same as teaching that dog to move in balance with his beautiful, free, swinging stride where his whole body's moving. So sometimes, too, if we have equipment that inhibits the movement of the dog, again, we're shortening that stride. We are creating physiological responses internally linked with that sympathetic nervous system response. Because when a dog's worried, they don't go, hey, I'm really <laughs> worried. Let me go and see. They go, oh, and uh-huh. that gets choppier and there's more concussion and that head gets tighter and higher. So, you know, we need to kind of keep thinking, am I creating a posture that's efficient for well-being or by you know through the best intentions I want to educate my dog 
am I actually triggering a posture that's then going to trigger behaviors I'm going to have to work on separately? And that's where, again, for me, I think about canine education rather than canine training. Yes. I think that's a fantastic place to end it, Sarah. Thank you so much for this. Sarah, it's been a joy. Thank you. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.